Chapter Twelve of Eighty Years and More, Reminiscences, eighteen fifteen to eighteen ninety seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynette Geisel. Eighty Years and More, Reminiscences, eighteen fifteen to eighteen ninety seven, by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Chapter Twelve, My First Speech Before a Legislature. Women had been willing so long to hold a subordinate position, both in private and public affairs, that a gradually growing feeling of rebellion among them quite exasperated the men, and their manifestations of hostility in public meetings were often as ridiculous as humiliating. True, these gentlemen were all quite willing that women should join their societies and churches to do the drudgery, to work up the enthusiasm in fairs and revivals, conventions and flag presentations, to pay a dollar apiece into their treasury for the honor of being members of their various organizations, to beg money for the church, to circulate petitions from door to door, to visit saloons, to pray with or defy rum-sellers, to teach school at half price, and sit round the outskirts of a hall, in teachers' state conventions, like so many wallflowers, but they would not allow them to sit on the platform, address the assembly, or vote for men and measures. Those who had learned the first lessons of human rights from the lips of Henry B. Stanton, Samuel J. May, and Garrett Smith, would not accept such position. When women abandoned the temperance reform, all interest in this question gradually died out in the state, and practically nothing was done in New York for nearly twenty years. Garrett Smith made one or two attempts towards an anti-dram-shop party, but as women could not vote, they felt no interest in the measure, and failure was the result. I soon convinced Miss Anthony that the ballot was the key to the situation, that when we had a voice in the laws, we should be welcome to any platform. In turning the intense earnestness and religious enthusiasm of this great-souled woman into this channel, I soon felt the power of my convert in goading me forever forward to more untiring work. Soon fastened, heart to heart, with hooks of steel and a friendship that years of confidence and affection have steadily strengthened, we have labored faithfully together. From the year 1850, conventions were held in various states, and their respective legislatures were continually besieged. New York was thoroughly canvassed by Miss Anthony and others. Appeals, calls for meeting, and petitions were circulated without number. In 1854, I prepared my first speech for the New York legislature. This was a great event in my life. I felt so nervous over it, lest it should not be worthy the occasion, that Miss Anthony suggested that I should slip up to Rochester and submit it to Reverend William Henry Channing, who was preaching there at the time. I did so, and his opinion was so favorable as to the merits of my speech that I felt quite reassured. My father felt equally nervous when he saw, from the Albany Evening Journal, that I was to speak at the Capitol, and asked me to read my speech to him also. Accordingly, I stopped in Jonestown on my way to Albany, and late one evening, when he was alone in his office, I entered and took my seat on the opposite side of his table. On no occasion before or since was I ever more embarrassed. An audience of one, and that the one of all others whose approbation I most desired, whose disapproval I most feared. I knew he condemned the whole movement, and was deeply grieved at the active part I had taken. 
hence i was fully aware that i was about to address a wholly unsympathetic audience however i began with a dog determination to give all the power i could to my manuscript and not to be discouraged or turned from my purpose by any tender appeals or adverse criticisms i described the widow in the first hours of her grief subject to the intrusions of the coarse minions of the law taking inventory of the household goods of the old armchair in which her loved one had breathed his last of the old clock in the corner that told the hour he passed away i threw all the pathos i could into my voice and language at this point and to my intense satisfaction i saw tears filling my father's eyes i cannot express the exultation i felt thinking that now he would see with my eyes the injustice women suffered under the laws he understood so well feeling that i had touched his heart i went on with renewed confidence and when i had finished i saw he was thoroughly magnetized with beating heart i waited for him to break the silence he was evidently deeply pondering over all he had heard and did not speak for a long time i believe i had opened to him a new world of thought he had listened long to the complaints of women but from the lips of his own daughter they had come with a deeper pathos and power at last he turned abruptly and said surely you have had a happy comfortable life with all your wants and needs supplied and yet that speech fills me with self-reproach for one might naturally ask how can a young woman tenderly brought up who has had no bitter personal experience feel so keenly the wrongs of her sex where did you learn this lesson i learned it here i replied in your office when a child listening to the complaints women made to you they who have sympathy and imagination to make the sorrows of others their own can rapidly learn all the hard lessons of life from the experience of others well well he said you have made your points clear and strong but i think i can find you even more cruel laws than those you have quoted he suggested some improvements in my speech looked up other laws and it was one o'clock in the morning before we kissed each other good-night how he felt on the question after that i do not know as he never said anything in favor of or against it he gladly gave me any help i needed from time to time in looking up the laws and was very desirous that whatever i gave to the public should be carefully prepared miss anthony printed twenty thousand copies of this address laid it on the desk of every member of the legislature both in the assembly and senate and in her travels that winter she circulated it throughout the state i am happy to say i never felt so anxious about the fate of a speech since the first women's convention in albany was held at this time and we had a kind of protracted meeting for two weeks after there were several hearings before both branches of the legislature and a succession of meetings in association hall in which phillips channing ernest l rose antoinette l brown and susan b anthony took part being at the capital of the state discussion was aroused at every fireside while the comments of the press were numerous and varied every little country paper had something witty or silly to say about the uprising of the strong-minded those editors whose heads were about the size of an apple were the most opposed to the uprising of women illustrating what sydney smith said long ago there always was and there always will be a class of men so small that if women were educated there would be nobody left below them poor human nature loves to have something to look down upon 
Here is a specimen of the way such editors talked at that time. The Albany Register, in an article on women's rights in the legislature, dated March 7, 1854, says, While the feminine propagandists of women's rights confine themselves to the exhibition of short petticoats and long-legged boots, and to the holding of conventions and speech-making in concert rooms, the people were disposed to be amused by them, as they are by the wit of the clown in the circus, or the performances of Punch and Judy on fair days, or the minstrel of gentlemen with blackened faces on banjos, the tambourine, and bones. But the joke is becoming stale. People are getting cloyed with their performances, and are looking for some healthier and more intellectual amusement. The ludicrous is wearing away, and disgust is taking the place of pleasurable sensations arising from the novelty of this new phase of hypocrisy and infidel. People are beginning to inquire how far public sentiment should sanction or tolerate these unsexed women, who would step out from the true sphere of the mother, the wife, the daughter, and taking upon themselves the duties and the business of men, stalk into the public gaze, and, by engaging in the politics, the rough controversies and trafficking of the world, upheave existing institutions and overrun all the social relations of life. It is a melancholy reflection that, among our American women, who have been educated to better things, there should be found any who are willing to follow the lead of such foreign propagandist as the ringleted, gloved exotic, Ernestine L. Rose. We can understand how such a man as the Reverend Mr. May, or the sleek-headed Dr. Channing, may be deluded by her into becoming one of her disciples. They are not the first instances of infatuation that may overtake weak-minded men, if they are honest in their devotion to her and her doctrines, nor would they be the first examples of a low ambition that seeks notoriety as a substitution for true fame, as they are dishonest. Such men there are always, and, honest or dishonest, their true position is that of being tied to the apron-strings of some strong-minded woman, and to be exhibited as rare specimens of human wickedness or human weakness and folly. But that one educated American should become her disciple and follow her insane teachings is a marvel. When we see the abuse and ridicule to which the best of men are subjected for standing on our platform in the early days, we need not wonder that so few have been brave enough to advocate our cause in later years, either in conventions or in the halls of legislation. After twelve added years of agitation, following the passage of the property bill, New York conceded other civil rights to married women. Pending the discussion of these various bills, Susan B. Anthony circulated petitions, both for the civil and political rights of women, throughout the state, traveling on stagecoaches, open wagons, and sleighs in all seasons, and on foot, from door to door through towns and cities, doing her utmost to rouse women to some sense of their natural rights as human beings, and to their civil and political rights as citizens of a republic and while extending her time, strength, and money to secure these blessings for the women of the state, they would gruffly tell her that they had all the rights they wanted, or rudely shut the door in her face, leaving her to stand outside, petition in hand, treating her with as much contempt as if she were asking alms for herself. None but those who did that work in the early days, for the slaves and the women, can ever know the hardships and humiliations that were endured. 
but it was done because it was only through petitions a power seemingly so inefficient that disfranchised classes could be heard in the state and national councils hence their importance the frivolous objections some women made to our appeals were as exasperating as they were ridiculous to reply to them politely at all times required a divine patience on one occasion, after addressing the legislature, some of the ladies in congratulating me inquired in the depreciating tone, What do you do with your children? Ladies, I said, it takes me no longer to speak than you to listen. What have you done with your children the two hours you have been sitting here? But to answer your question, I never leave my children to go to Saratoga, Washington, Newport, or Europe, or even to come here. They are, at this moment, with a faithful nurse in the Delavan house, and having accomplished my mission, we shall all return home together. When my children reached the magic number of seven, my good angel, Susan B. Anthony, would sometimes take one or two of them to her own quiet home just out of Rochester, where, on a well-cultivated little farm, one could enjoy uninterrupted rest and the choicest fruits of the season. That was always a safe harbor for my friend, as her family sympathized fully in the reforms to which she gave her life. I have many pleasant memories of my own flying visits to the hospitable Quaker home and the broad Catholic spirit of Daniel and Lucy Anthony. Whatever opposition and ridicule their daughter endured elsewhere, she enjoyed the steadfast sympathy and confidence of her own home circle. Her faithful sister Mary, a most successful teacher in the public schools of Rochester for a quarter of a century, and a good financier, who with her patrimony and salary had laid by a competence, took on her shoulders double duty at home in cheering the declining years of her parents, that Susan might do the public work and the reforms in which they were equally interested. Now with life's earnest work nearly accomplished, the sisters were living happily together, illustrating another of the many charming homes of single women, so rapidly multiplying of late. Miss Anthony, who was a frequent guest at my home, sometimes stood guard when I was absent. The children of our household say that among their earliest recollections is the tableau of Mother and Susan, seated by a large table, covered with books and papers, always writing and talking about the Constitution, interrupted with occasional visits from others of the faithful. Hither came Elizabeth Oakes Smith, Paulina Wright Davis, Francis Dana Gage, Dr. Harriet Hunt, Reverend Antoinette Brown, Lucy Stone, and Abby Kelly, until all these names were as familiar as household words to the children. Martha C. Wright of Auburn was a frequent visitor at the center of the rebellion, as my sequestered cottage on Locust Hill was fastidiously called. She brought to these councils of war not only her own wisdom, but that of the wife and sister of William H. Seward, and sometimes encouraging suggestions from the great statesman himself, from whose writings we often gleaned grand and radical sentiments. Luceretta Mote, too, being an occasional guest of her sister, Martha C. Wright, added the dignity of her presence at many of these important consultations. She was uniformly in favor of toning down our fiery pronunciamentos. For Miss Anthony and myself, the English language had no words strong enough to express the indignation we felt at the prolonged injustice to women. We found, however, that after expressing ourselves in the most vehement manner, and thus in a measure giving our feelings an outlet, we were reconciled to issue the documents in milder terms. 
if the men of the state could have known the stern rebukes the denunciations the wit the irony the sarcasm that were gardenered there and then judiciously pigeonholed and milder more persuasive appeals substituted they would have been truly thankful that they fared no worse senator seward frequently left washington to visit in our neighborhood at the house of judge g v sackett a man of wealth and political influence one of the senator's standing anecdotes at dinner to illustrate the purifying influence of women at the polls which he always told with great zest for my especial benefit was in regard to the manner in which his wife's sister exercised the right of suffrage he said mrs warden having the supervision of a farm near auburn was obliged to hire two or three men for its cultivation it was her custom having examined them as to their capacity to perform the required labor their knowledge of tools horses cattle and horticulture to inquire as to their politics she informed them that being a widow and having no one to represent her she must have republicans to do her voting and to represent her political opinions and it always so happened that the men who offered their services belonged to the republican party i remarked to her one day are you sure your men vote as they promise yes she replied i trust nothing to their discretion i take them in my carriage within sight of the polls and put them in charge of some republican who can be trusted i see that they have the right tickets and then i feel sure that i am faithfully represented and i know i am right in doing so i have neither husband father nor son i am responsible for my own taxes am amenable to all the laws of the state must pay the penalty of my own crimes if i commit any hence i have the right according to the principles of our government to representation and so long as i am not permitted to vote in person i have a right to do so by proxy hence i hire men to vote my principles these two sisters mrs warden and mrs seward daughters of judge miller an influential man were women of culture and remarkable natural intelligence and interested in all progressive ideas they had rare common sense and independence of character great simplicity of manner and were wholly indifferent to the little arts of the toilet i was often told by fashionable women that they objected to the women's rights movements because the publicity of a convention the immodesty of speaking from a platform and the trial of seeing one's name in the papers several ladies made such remarks to me one day as a bevy of us were sitting together in one of the fashionable hotels in newport we were holding a convention there at the time and some of them had been present at one of the sessions really i said ladies you surprise me our conventions are not as public as the ballroom where i saw you all dancing last night as to modesty it may be a question in many minds whether it is less modest to speak words of stubbornness and truth plainly dressed on a platform than gorgeously arrayed with bare arms and shoulders to waltz in the arms of strange gentlemen as to the press i noticed you all reading in this morning's papers with evident satisfaction the personal compliments and full descriptions of your dresses at the last ball i presume that any one of you would have felt slighted if your name had not been mentioned in the general description when my name is mentioned it is in connection with some great reform movement thus we all suffer or enjoy the same publicity we are alike ridiculed wise men pity and ridicule you and fools pity and ridicule me you as the victims of folly and fashion me as the representative of many of the disagreeable isms of the age as they chose to style liberal opinions it is amusing in analyzing prejudices 
to see what slender foundation they rest and the ladies around me were so completely cornered that no one attempted an answer i remember being at a party at secretary seward's home in auburn one evening when mr burlingame special administrator from china to the united states with a chinese delegation were among the guests as soon as the dance commenced the young ladies and gentlemen locked in each other's arms began to whirl in a giddy waltz these chinese gentlemen were so shocked that they covered their faces with their fans occasionally peeping out each side and expressing their surprise to each other they thought us the most immodest women on the face of the earth modesty and taste are questions of latitude and education the more people know the more their ideas are expanded by travel experience and observation the less easily they are shocked the narrowness and bigotry of women are the result of their circumscribed sphere of thought and action a few years after judge holbert had published his work on human rights in which he advocated women's rights to the suffrage and i addressed the legislature we met at a dinner party in albany senator and mrs seward were there the senator was very merry on this occasion and made judge holbert and myself the target for all his ridicule on the women's rights question in which the most of the company joined so that he quite stood alone sure that we had the right on our side and the arguments clearly defined in our minds and both being cool and self-possessed and in wit and sarcasm quite equal to any of them we fought the senator inch by inch until he had a very narrow platform to stand on mrs seward maintaining an unbroken silence while those ladies who did open their lips were with the opposition supposing no doubt that senator stewart represented his wife's opinions when we ladies withdrew from the table my embarrassment may be easily imagined separated from the judge i would now be an hour with a bivy of ladies who evidently felt repugnance to all my most cherished opinions it was the first time i had met mrs seward and i did not then know the broad liberal tendencies of her mind what a tide of disagreeable thought rushed through me at that short passage from the dining-room to the parlor how gladly i would have glided out the front door but that was impossible so i made up my mind to stroll round as if self-absorbed and look at the books and paintings until the judge appeared as i took it for granted that after all that i had said at the table on the political religious and social equality of women not a lady would have anything to say to me imagine then my surprise when the moment the parlor door was closed upon us mrs seward approached me most affectionately and said let me thank you for your brave words you uttered at the dinner-table and for your speech before the legislature that thrilled my soul as you read it over and over i was filled with joy and astonishment recovering myself i said is it possible mrs seward that you agree with me then why when i was so hard pressed by foes on every side did you not come to the defences i supposed that all you ladies were hostile to every one of my ideas on this question no no she said i am with you thoroughly but i am a born coward there is nothing i dread more than mr seward's ridicule i would rather walk up to the cannon's mouth and encounter it i too am with you and i said two or three others who had been silent at the table i never had a more serious heartfelt conversation than with these ladies mrs seward's spontaneity and earnestness had moved them all deeply and when the senator appeared the first words he said were before we part i must confess that i was fairly vanquished by you and the judge on my own principles 
for we had quoted some of his most radical utterances. You have the argument, but custom and prejudice are against you, and they are stronger than truth and logic. End of chapter 12 Recording by Lynette Geisel